we just have to realize that in the end, there are, I believe, more Americans who believe as I do, as you do, as your listeners do. We just have to stay engaged because our enemy is not just the Republican Party. It's apathy. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. Joining us today is Virginia delegate Nancy Guy. She's got an incredible story about running for office in the town she grew up in and how she made it through a squeaker of a race. But first, we are joined by actor and Virginia native son, Dietrich Bader, He's got an incredible story of his own growing up around politics, and he'll help us break down the week that was. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. So I can't wait for everyone to hear the interview with Delegate Guy. She is really great, told some great stories, hometown girl, grew up uh, in Virginia Beach and ended up serving that community. And she has so many stories to tell about all the great legislation they've passed since they had the trifecta. I can't wait to hear. It's a good one. Uh, But we've got Dietrich with us. Dietrich Bader is an actor who has had iconic roles in some of our favorite movies and shows like Office Space, Napoleon Dynamite, American Housewife, of course, Veep, and so many others. He's also an accomplished voice actor with a ridiculously long list of credits, including playing Batman. He's actually Batman. Wow. I got to know Dietrich a bit when he worked with my wife, Melinda. It's so great to have you here with us. I've been following you over the years, especially on Twitter and everything, and really have appreciated uh, your using your platform and using your voice on yeah. on there and everywhere else. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, uh, actors get a lot of flack mm-hmm. for having political views and expressing political views. So I, I don't. I edit myself a little bit just because I don't want to over inundate people with uh, my political views. Um, It's fascinating to me that the same people that criticize actors for having a political opinion and expressing that opinion, if you go to their actual page, they're almost nothing but politics and, Mm -hmm. uh, and their assurances and uh, and confirming their own beliefs rather than anything contradictory or or, yeah. or a deeper cut than uh, than what they're immediately expressing. So they can be political and have a political opinion, but but actors and entertainers are not supposed to. Um, so it's sort of a weird yeah. um, box they put you in because. They just want you to shut up and do your little <laughs> monkey dance, you know? Well, it's, <laughs> okay, yeah. It's it's really weird because like the whole like stay in your lane, you know, thing, yeah. you know, the the work of being a citizen, of being involved in our in our community and in our society, that's everybody's lane, you know. That's right. And and when anyone speaks up, when someone decides I'm going to start doing some organizing or join with the community organizing mm-hmm. group and they speak up and speak their opinion and share their knowledge from their perspective, they don't get a lot of grief for that because that's our job. But uh when it's an artist who has a large platform, all of a sudden they're getting 
stay in your lane artist, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and yeah. and it's just ridiculous. It, it, you have a wonderful opportunity when you have a larger platform to yeah. reach more people. That's it. Um, Very powerful. Yeah. yeah. And uh, as you said, uh, Steve, the, the job of a citizen is to participate. If there's no participation in democracy, then democracy doesn't exist. Um, that's, that's the very essence of it is that you have to contribute and uh, you have to be part of the dialogue. I mean, you know, you, you look at Athens and the way that they, they rotated their leadership and they didn't even have real politicians, you know, they're, they're, I mean, obviously there, there were appointments for uh, generals and for people that ran uh, infrastructure uh, but other than that, just like your general politicians, they were picked out of a hat of citizens, literally. Mm -hmm. So they, I mean, not an actual hat. They had a board and everybody's name was in it. And then they just randomly chose like the marble or whatever it was. I can't remember. It was a while ago. Uh, <laughs> I actually saw the board. It was really cool to have it on in Athens. But anyway, they completely randomly pick a citizen to trick is very, very old for those listening. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I've been participating in democracy for four millennia. <laughs> well, let, let me back up for one second. Uh, yeah. And just for our, our listeners, give a little bit more context. Obviously, um, I, I got to know you a little bit when my wife, Melinda, and you were on a show that ended too soon called Center of the Universe. It was a great show. Um and and one right. thing that struck me in our conversation. Melinda, by the way, everybody, Melinda is a fantastic actress and lovely to work with, and is just a truly great Aww. person. I'm just going to put that in really quickly. <laughs> Thank you. I agree. You know, uh, <laughs> this interview is perfect so far. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I remember our conversations really struck me, and I've thought about them a lot over the years. At the time, you were just coming off working on the Drew Carey show, I think. That's right. And you had done the Beverly Hillbillies was like the, uh, I don't think you'd done Napoleon Dynamite yet. Maybe I had you, actually, yeah. You had, okay. So, yeah. so you- But it hadn't come out. Okay, hadn't come out. Yeah. So you'd played some characters that were um, not the brightest of people. Oh yeah, that's my stock and trade. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, um, and you were playing uh, kind of a haphazard character on Center of the Universe too. Um, oh no, he was dumb. Tommy was dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be <laughs> judicious. At no, it's, really, point, it's fine. At, uh, how, after how many roles do you say, wait a minute? Oh, right. Am I actually? What are they circling around here? But that's, but that's my point. So, so then, uh, like, first of all, we know, because uh, I'm around a lot of actors, my wife, and I know sure. that it takes a really smart guy to play a character that's broad and not smart and do it really well and make it funny. So, um, but when I had these conversations with you, first of all, I grew up in a political family in D.C. And, yeah, I remember. Uh, and so I, uh, I was just struck by not only how well you played those characters, but how uh, smart and informed you are. Um, and it came from growing up in DC in an activist family. Your your father was in the foreign service and was now here we're at the 40th anniversary of the Pentagon Papers. He was kind of instrumental in bringing the truth about the Vietnam War out too. Absolutely. Robert McNamara would not have resigned as Secretary of Defense without the actions of my father using his contacts in the CIA to find out the Gulf of Tonkin was actually a uh, fake, a deep wow. fake. And uh, something where they had already um, chosen the policy and uh, and then had to have the information in order to back it up. Um, you know, they uh, they lied. Uh, he lied. And uh, 
So my dad uh, found it out, handed the information to Senator Bill Fulbright, and Fulbright confronted McNamara with it at the hearing, and, and uh, he said, Senator, uh, I'll have an appropriate answer for you tomorrow, and he resigned. Wow. So a big deal. Yeah. So, so what was that like? What was your experience like growing up in uh, a political family like that? And then later, your dad came and worked for the Clinton administration. Um, but that's right. Uh, that was his. Uh, uh, I yes, it was. Uh, that was his only presidential appointment, and he was at the um, at the State Department uh, as Assistant Secretary of State for uh, the Clinton administration. And he was in charge of what they call the. Um, like the cultural minister, basically. It's just, we don't have anything like that. Otherwise, Republicans would object. We have no culture, you know. <laughs> Why should there be somebody who runs that? But if you want to have artists that have exchanges or you have uh, student visas, something like that, right. um, they all fall under his um, auspices, under his umbrella at the State Department. Um, I, uh, oddly enough, um, the 9-11 terrorists got student visas when there was no department head. In other words, there was no one in my dad's job during the Bush administration at the time of the wow. uh, those students. So they didn't really have anybody to blame uh, but themselves because they didn't mm. they didn't have anybody to go. What is this? What? Who are these guys? Yeah. Um, they just were sort of blanketly let them in. But uh, um, anyway, uh, yeah, no, he was a he was a, he was a super interesting guy. Um, you know, when I got to be older, um, he was one of the greatest um, guys you could ever have a cocktail with because he had so many good stories, but you really had to pull him out because that was that generation, you know, where they just didn't talk about themselves. For example, I didn't know that he was homeless for a while. I didn't know that he was shoeshine bore here in Los Angeles. Mm. I didn't know that without a track scholarship, he wouldn't have been able to go to college at all. I didn't know any of that. He didn't tell me any of that um, until I just had to pull it out of him. Um, but at one point I asked him, so you had the skinny on Robert McNamara mm -hmm. and you decided to give it to Fulbright. What if you had told McNamara that you had this information? What would have happened? And mm. he looked at me and he said, I'd probably be secretary of state now <laughs> mm. <laughs> because that's how power works. Yeah. Um, you say to somebody, I have something on you so huge, so monumental, it'll change your life. You're in a position of power. I'm going to have to get some of that power. I'm just going to have to, um, and you're going to give it to me. Or you can do the, I mean, you know, the right thing from a certain perspective and, uh, and bring him down. And uh, he said, you know, you're going you're gonna to reach crossroads in your life. Not that I have, I'm an actor. So there's not a lot of huge moral decisions I need to make. Uh, but, uh, but he did say, which I love that he tried to incorporate me into the argument that you're going to have to make, you're going to have to make some moral decisions and, mm -hmm. and something that you're going to have to live with. Um, and I can uh, look back on my career and not <clears throat> shudder at any point. Mm. And that's something that's a lot. That's yeah. important. Do you think that sort of, um, knowing kind of having like insider knowledge of how dc really works the the swamp as, as the cliche is do you think that sort of drove you away from that did you ever consider going into that that world at all um that's an interesting question um so i always viewed politicians as like rock stars for good and ill in that um, some of them can be totally amazing, charismatic things. 
but they can also be preening, you know, um, and self uh, <laughs> serving and vain and uh, uh, incurious. Um, and incurious uh, is a great descriptor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them that are, they just want their bullet points and they want what sells well. And so they hand over responsibility to those advisors, like my father that would tell them what to say. Um, but anyway, um, I think maybe I saw a little too much. I saw how the sausage was made. So I, I, I uh, and I saw when the sausage was made at a time when they were making quality sausage. Um, <laughs> and part of that was that, and a lot of people that grew up outside of DC wouldn't get this, but so I'm going to express an unpopular opinion. Mm. The backroom deals and the pork and uh, the Washington cocktail hour. My dad had a full bar in his office in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was chief of staff. He had a full bar there. By full, I mean, he had like 40 bottles. Did he wow. have grappa? Probably not. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but senators would come and they would have a drink after work and, and they'd hash things out and, uh, and they'd all go to dinner together. You know, uh, they'd have some drinks. They'd go, all right, what is it that you really want? What, what are we talking about here? And, um, and they would trade and they would talk Turkey. And you know what? That's how deals are done, everybody. That's how deals are done. And things got done. And, uh, yeah. and there was a comedy there. There was a, there was a civilized nature to it that, was yeah, bare knuckle, of course, right. What do you want is a thing like, okay, let's get into it. But now they don't socialize at all. And, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, uh, who I loathe, and uh, uh, Newt Gingrich kind of called that. They, mm. they said, yep. go yeah. home to your constituency. Don't go to the dinner parties. Don't go to those parties. Don't make backroom deals. Don't have that cocktail hour. Don't socialize with the enemy. Here's mm. the thing. They're not the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> they're not the enemy they're the other side we're just playing we're not playing politics we are we are trying to do something together we're not all going to agree all the time that's the right. nature of democracy so let's hash it out and when they got rid of pork and they got rid of the idea of um a culture in washington the inside the beltway thinking they would decry yeah it actually worked a lot better than people are giving it credit for. I mean, now look at the Senate, especially during the Trump administration. What did they actually do? Tax cut? Judges. Other than that? <clears throat> right. Yeah. I, you know, I love that you said that. I talk about that a lot. That was my experience, too, growing up in D.C. Also, grow, now having raised having raised, okay, I'm not crying, you're crying. My daughter no. just graduated yesterday. <laughs> um, but having having uh, raised a kid in Los Angeles, um, you know, from being here, you, you go to school with actors and producers yeah. and all the whole industry. Yeah. It was the same way in DC when we grew up in that area. Like we went to school with sinners, kids and congressmen. Totally kids and uh, ambassadors and military. And, and so, as you said, they would disagree. They would have these, th you know, whatever, yeah. but then there would be like a baseball game they would be at, or there'd be a party yeah. they'd be at and they would talk. And we were talking about this with Ted Lou a couple of episodes ago. Oh, he's awesome. Cool. Uh, right. Yeah. He's, he's so yeah. great. And, yeah. um, and he said, yeah, it's true that that has gone away, but even if it hadn't gone away, I'm still not going to hang out at a party with Marjorie Taylor Greene 
Right. <laughs> you know, in some because because this GOP has gone so far off the rails from as yeah. just where we where we were. So I mean, look, it, it predates McCarthy. People always start like to say that it started with McCarthy. There there is a liberal thought and there is illiberal thought mm. uh, or conservatism and, and uh, liberalism. And that is um, history, the dynamic between those two, between those that want complete control and for things to be exactly the same, to stand athwart history, as they said. Uh, and those that go, okay, you know what? We made a mistake with this. We're going to have to remedy that. Uh, I accept my responsibility for where we are right now, but let's have a dialogue about how we go forward. That is the nature of history. Um, and I'm a history buff, um, maybe a little overcompensation because um, I'm the only kid in my family without a PhD. So they all know <laughs> a lot of stuff. So I may be over. You have, you have an honorary one. Just yeah, by yeah, exactly. Yeah. I finally, I played a guy with a PhD. So I was like, <laughs> um, but, uh, but that's the, the nature of history is that there were always, there always have been Marjorie Taylor Greens. There have always been Mitch McConnell's there have, uh, and, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy is pseudo historians that bring up that the Democratic Party ruined Reconstruction. That's entirely true. That is entirely true. It's true, right? but a hundred percent right. Your point is dumb because yes. <laughs> Thank you. because it's the same illiberal liberal, right? It's it's the open mindedness of then the Republican Party. Uh, but if you were to chart like how the Republicans thought about what they wrote about, they were the Democrats of that time. Right. It's the same type of person. That's what we're talking about. So the point of the party shifting is like, okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. They're, they were Democrats. Got it. That's great. Good for you. You got Wikipedia at some point. Um, but, uh, Which, it's please jump back on Wikipedia because that's where I get all of my research from. All right. I know. I know. Oh, it's right there. And a lot of it is super interesting. You know, like I go down rabbit holes with Wikipedia all the time. Like Charles the Bald, for example, wasn't bald. What? Those are things I look up. Um, <laughs> But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it's 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 liberal versus illiberal thought, and that's the nature of history. We will always have Joseph McCarthy's. We will always have Marjorie Taylor Greens. It's how large a platform we give them and how much honor we give to them. Um, and uh, they tend to take up a lot of oxygen. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, uh, it's unfortunate, uh, and especially in today's age. And you know, we're we're talking about Twitter. Uh, Arguments now are so limited by the characters and uh, and people just, you know, generally shrill yelling at each other. And I will say from both sides, but the Marjorie Taylor Greens of this world are given a larger platform than they were. You know, there were kooks when we were living in Washington. Yeah. Um, there were there were I mean, there was a Jesse Helms. You know, it wasn't totally bonkers, but yeah, he was pretty far right. And uh, presaged a lot of where they were going with the party. Um, and, you know, Strom Thurmond, um, mm -hmm. who was uh, an unbelievable racist. Right. But also had a black family. 
Right. So what? I mean, you know, there's always these. Uh, there's it's always not those funny, guys. but you. It's you not funny. Help. I'm sorry to you present it as a funny but, you can't thing, help but, but it's laugh like okay, so it's so absurd. You know what I'm saying? It's like his yeah. own children. He's going against right. his children. Right. Not that he didn't see all humanity, and and <laughs> but in your direct, you would think your direct interest, like your children. I don't know. It's just one of those things that that didn't surprise me. At the same time, I was like, "Wow, man, that's uh, you, you, wow." Yeah, we could go on about the kooks all day. I think, yeah, but yeah, yeah. history is full of them. Uh, but let's let's talk about your your home state of Virginia. Yes, please. Um, doing doing big things the the last couple of years. Um, we won a trifecta there in in 2019. Looking from the outside at what's happening there, um, has it changed since you uh, since you were growing up and living in Alexandria? Yes, it's changed a lot. Um, uh, when I first moved to Alexandria, Virginia, uh, we had just moved from Paris. I was actually there when I was super little, but I have basically no memories of it. Then we moved to Paris and we moved back. Driving into Old Town Alexandria from Fairfax County, which is where uh, Mount Vernon is and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Driving into Alexandria, Virginia, Old Town Alexandria, there was a statue that you had to pass. I think it was on Henry Street. It was right in the middle. Like, you know, so the street curved around this thing. Okay. Um, it was of a Confederate soldier mourning the Confederate dead. Hmm. And... I remember being little, I was seven, and the first time I saw it, I was like, who's that? And my mom goes, well, that's it, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, aren't those the bad guys? I mean, didn't they, aren't those the bad guys? Right. <laughs> like, why is there a statue to them? I'm like, here, like right here. Because it seems right. like they were, you know, traitors and they had a war and everything. Um, and also just really awful. Um, but that statue is gone. That's, mm. it's, it's gone. And, uh, when they say like, oh, it's like canceling history, it's not, guys. Those were put up in the, I don't know when that particular statue was put up, but probably, probably in the 50s. Right. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like, look, these are not guys to celebrate. Even Robert E. Lee didn't want a statue to himself. He, he was like, I, you know, I, I'm a traitor. <laughs> you know? um, he did. He did want he did specifically want because I'm also a student of history, a yeah. Dodge Challenger uh, named after him. Dodge Challenger, sure. And a, and a prominent yeah, placement on a TV fantastic show. television show um, <laughs> that I watched for the shorts. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, Northern Virginia has come to grips with it um, mm -hmm. and uh, and changed. The South has changed a lot. Um, but Northern Virginia particularly has dramatically changed. A lot of it is influx, but it's also a lot of a change of attitude. Um, it used to be that once you left Alexandria and DC, it was super South. It yeah. was really South. I mean, um, and you know, there were different attitudes and, um, it was real and, uh, it's changed a lot. That whole region is what's changed the state their representatives anyway. And, uh, and it's, it's only for the good. It's, it's a, it's a step forward and not a step back. Um, but, um, there's still a lot, oh, there's a ways to go. I mean, there's always a ways to go. And, uh, I will definitely be, uh, as much of a part of changing Virginia 
uh, continuing to change Virginia as I possibly can as my home state and a place that I really love. Um, love it. You know, uh, all we can do is contribute. Well, I mean, Los Angeles is what it is. Ted Lou, for example, is my congressman. So, <laughs> oh, cool. You know, like, there's <laughs> so a you're lot. Good there. I'm pretty, we're pretty peace out. Yeah. yeah. We're, yeah. <laughs> you can focus on yeah. other things. Well, yeah, we'll, other thing. we'll we'll hold you to helping out with Virginia. Oh, 100. I'm in because we are going we are going big on this. We, having mm -hmm. won the trifecta, the legislation that they've been able to pass having yeah. the trifecta there has been transformative we're gonna talk about it later in this episode with delegate nancy guy oh um, nancy guy great yeah and she won her election by 41 votes 41 wow. votes so she's got another one that's going to be tight and and uh it's the first time Swing Left is uh, working on a gubernatorial race. We're going to be involved to make sure that we hold on to that. Uh, the governor chair as well. So, um, so yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be. Yeah, talk uh, about doubling down with the crazy. The uh, the Republican uh, running for governor. Holy cow! The fascinating thing is that rather than moderate themselves, where Democrats are always told to moderate themselves, Republicans mm. are never told to moderate themselves. So they'll. They have tripled down on uh, what I view as extremism, um, you yeah. know, uh, and and yeah, does it get a wide demographic or, or are you? I share that view, by the way. Go? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's you can't call it anything other than extremism. It's just it is, it's, extremism. it's, it's yeah. bonkers, you know, yeah, writing this stuff down every week. To, what are we going to talk about? I, I can't even believe the shit that I'm writing down to talk about. So that's the thing. I mean, that's what's galling about it is that uh, they, the path forward is to have less people vote. Imagine that being your path forward. Like you, you obviously see the demographics change. You know that your arguments aren't working with a larger crowd. Mm -hmm. So in order to continue to be elected, you have to stop people from voting, which is the opposite of democracy. Rather than refining your uh, platform, I mean, for God's sakes, there wasn't even a platform at the last Republican convention. Rather than refining your platform, uh, you're just going to double down on extremism. Yeah. That's just what it is. And well, to call it anything else is, well, you're just, you're lying. Yeah. You're lying. I mean, yeah. you can't say it's naive because they know, they're knowing it. Look, people always say like, Ted Cruz, you know, doesn't know what he's doing or know what he's saying or know the constitution or whatever. Ted Cruz is actually... Let's give him something. He is not a dumb guy. This guy is a smart man. And uh, he, he, it makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it worse because he knows what he's saying. He knows that it's wrong. He knows that he's going against the constitution itself when he says things. He knows that he needs to boil it down and change his message to be something truly awful. And that's where, where we are. I mean, it's a, yeah, look at Texas. They know they're going to lose. Yeah, this might be the nicest thing that anyone has publicly said about Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'll go on so record. Yeah. I You're mean, so Paul, Howley, Howley as well, who I also think is an absolutely reprehensible person. Again, because he is very bright. He's a bright guy, um, and knows better. You know, he studied the Constitution. He was uh, clearly a very intelligent guy, um, and it, it to me that makes it worse. But Howley and Tr Cruz. McConnell, I mean, they all know what they're doing. Oh, totally. 
I want to get your your take on uh, Biden's first overseas trip because uh, we just yeah. uh, he's been overseas. We had the G seven and and meeting with Putin and all of that. And and you have uh, some u- unique insight there uh, with your background and your father yes. being in the foreign service. Uh, yes. What's your takeaway from Biden's uh, first trip overseas? Um, I think he's doing very well. And I mean, obviously, people are comparing the two G7s that happened recently. And, uh, you know, it's all over Twitter, the thing where the guy is pushing him aside and it's yeah. just awful. And uh, uh, and them all yelling at him. And uh, yeah, look, that era was really particularly tough for me growing up and uh, somebody that talked about foreign policy as the, you know, the number one conversation at our dinner table. Um, I met Joe Biden because my dad was chief of staff for the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee when Joe Biden was senator. And uh, uh, the only senator, by the way, who remembered my name, which sounds like a small Aww. thing, but it is actually a very big thing. I would come into my dad's office yeah. to do my homework. And uh, uh, he, by the way, in order to make his train, would have one drink and then split. But the rest of the senators, now they would they did their own thing. But he was uh, well. In their defense, your dad's bar was very well stocked. Yeah, pretty stocked. <laughs> um, but anyway, no, I think it's going very well. Um, I mean, I, I think it's smart that there, uh, with the Putin meeting, that there aren't there isn't going to be a joint uh, press conference um, mm, because yeah. really, like, why put on that pony show? And obviously, the one with Trump was uh, so. Yeah unbelievably embarrassing the idea that we would create a joint intelligence service with the russians it's like i mean what the hell yeah. uh happened jaw um, dropping yeah jaw dropping and uh, um yeah truly i mean you know obviously my dad was ex-cia the idea that he wouldn't trust his intelligence services and that he he actually wanted to give the shop up to you know put the fox in the hen house but uh, is truly amazing to me so i mean I, i'll be interested to see what happens with that probably not a lot they clearly don't like each other you can't really like putin he's not a good yeah. person as as uh, uh biden um you know when uh, stephanopoulos asked him is he a killer he was like mm-hmm, yeah <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. he is he kills his opponents he's he's uh He's terrible. There's nothing like it. He is not. What's crazy is like uh, the Republicans will say he's a communist. Guys, that's not communism. He's one of the wealthiest people in the world, mm. even though his mm. economy is basically the size of Italy's. You know, that's what we're talking about. Not a massive economy. But anyway, he's he takes and takes and takes and takes and protects uh, the other oligarchs who in turn protect him. But as far as like, uh, you know, something substantive, was there a lot accomplished by the G7? A lot of that is is organized before they get there. That's the way a lot of those talks go. And um, obviously, Boris Johnson and Biden didn't accomplish a hell of a lot. They're going to be on different shores. Um, but reinforcing the idea of the special relationship and then just being there and showing that we have a commitment to our relationship with Europe and Occidentalism and NATO um, is important. Um, I personally think that our pivot back to Asia will be the most important pivot that we do right now. I think it was the singular greatest foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration, uh, the TPP, and we have to get back into that. Um, 
I don't know how to broach those talks, but uh, that was a truly great agreement and something I think we have to get back into somehow. Um, I mean, you know, I, not to be China bashing, but um, they're, you know, they have a very different approach than we do. And mm -hmm. we need to find a way to uh, not necessarily contain them, but to have uh, a foreign policy that meets them where they are and an outreach program that, because if you look at their loans that they're doing in both in Africa and in South America for infrastructure, the way that they're structured is so punitive to these countries that can't afford it, mm. that they're seizing those properties because they can't afford to pay the loan back. So what can we do? Uh, one thing I learned uh, is that the State Department is cheaper than the Defense Department. And uh, if we have an active State Department that really does its job and has a clear policy, not only are we doing the right thing because uh, the idea of America, the idea of a democracy, we haven't lived up to it, but the idea of democracy is a beautiful thing and gives every individual the chance of uh, both expressing themselves and being able to come into their fuller nature. Um, and, is, is a greater message than the message of China, um, which is basically like you have some natural resources and we want them, which is of course the essence of capitalism. Again, although they're the CCP, that that second C, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. It should be capitalism. It should be the Chinese <laughs> capitalist party um, because that's essentially what they're doing. So the TPP was a great way of trying to combat the economic, and foreign policy war that we are actually actively fighting. It, that is the new Cold War, it's economic. And we are we should double down on that Cold War and win it just as we won the Cold War. Hmm. Well, while I appreciate your perspective on that very much, I think I speak for most of our listeners when I just ask you to please stay in your lane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should, yeah. No, I don't know what I'm talking about, TPP. <laughs> Nobody this knows is, what that means. This is such a fascinating conversation. I just love the depth of knowledge that you bring. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm listening to you talking about this and wondering if, if you have your own political podcast or you've thought about doing a, <laughs> no. a political podcast of your own or something. Or, no. You know. no, 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 no. But I did talk about it. I mean, you know, my son is very interested in, in uh, foreign policy and, uh, mm. uh, and probably wants to go into um, foreign service. Oh, cool. Uh, so uh, it's something we continue to talk about in our family every day. So, uh, uh, so I have to do my research because he does more research than me. Because I'm always <laughs> like, I got to bring home the bacon, guys. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so no, it's. A, I mean, we have an active dialogue, uh, and he has a challenging mind, and uh, it's very cool. It's kept me kept on my toes. When someone says um, they're in the foreign service, does that mean that they're actually a spy? <laughs> it depends. I mean, uh, uh, obviously, there's CIA all over the place, and a lot of uh, embassies all over, especially the major countries. There, there, there obviously will be a CIA guy there. Um, there's a lot of field work, but a lot of work is done uh, by the CIA by turning people that are in those countries, you know, and and developing relationships um, that help you. Let's wrap this up with yeah. uh, the question that we ask everybody, and that's what brings you the most hope right now. Um, 
I am more hopeful now than I have been uh, politically in my life mm. because uh, in my lifetime, because um, I think what Donald Trump exposed was something that needed to be. I think the Black Lives Matter movement needed to have Donald Trump be so awful um, so that we could have advocates and allies realize they've got to be part of it. Um, you can't sit back. You got to participate in a democracy. And that means that if there are civil rights being violated, it's not a joke. I mean, I remember with a lot of my black friends growing up, uh, uh, we would joke about that, there, you know, if two of us are driving down the road, he'd get pulled over and I would be fine. It seemed funny at the time. We knew that there was a bitter truth underneath it. Mm. But we addressed it more like ironically, comedically. And uh, those days should be over. It's not funny. It was never really funny. We only dealt with it comedically because that's the easiest way to deal with things. Right. And uh, I am very hopeful that we have come to a point where we are going to deal with it. And we're going to deal with our racism. We're going to deal with our misogyny. We're going to deal with uh, the suppression of people that are on the lowest level of our economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was reading about uh, in Alabama, there are waste systems in black neighborhoods, which basically don't exist. You know, these guys are getting ringworm. Their uh, their children are being poisoned um, mm. by the groundwater. It's it's horrific. And just like FDR dealt with extreme poverty uh, mm. through the TVA and all of that. I mean, you got to remember, people were sleeping on rags covered with bugs. Most Americans didn't have... Um, if they had a roof over their head, they probably didn't have indoor plumbing. Mm -hmm. um, that's where America was. That wasn't really that long ago. Right. Um, and Democrats dealt with that, specifically FDR. Um, and this, you know, Biden, he is a dark horse because I thought he would be much more moderate. Man, yeah. you look at that infrastructure bill, you look at the, uh, it, it's the real deal, man. It's the real deal. Um, and we are, tackling something that we should have dealt with a long time ago but you know what that's the way it works um but donald trump by lifting up that rock and letting all the rats out well under that rock that doesn't make sense the bugs under the rock um, <laughs> and let them watch them scurry and we go ah charlottesville yeah beautiful town in my home state of virginia seeing that in the town that i knew really well it's just not uh, time to sit on the sidelines anymore. It's, we can't. We just can't. And there's obviously stuff that we have to deal with. And, uh, and I think we're finally dealing with it. Will it work out in the next 10 years? No, but we've started the dialogue. And uh, I am genuinely excited to be a part of it and to be an American and to watch how this world is going to change because we are dealing with our significant problems. Well said.
Thank you so much for for helping us end on it. We've we've talked about some heavy things, but that was a really nice positive note to end on. Thank you so much. So sweet. Mariah, what a pleasure to meet you and congratulations on your newborn. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This was a fun conversation. I hope you come back. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It was great. It It was great catching up with you. Yeah. Thank you. Great to see you, man. And, And thank you so much for doing this. It's really cool. Oh, well, we love doing it. And and exactly what you said at the end, it's so important that we stay involved. I like what you said just now about uh, the next 10 years, too, because um, so many people jump in like election cycle by election cycle or right, right. before elections. And, I get it. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I get it. That's the, but you have to think in, in generational terms. Yeah. And, and that's the only way that things really change. I mean, my God, the civil rights movement was the 60s. That really isn't that long ago. No, no. And we've already changed the dialogue back for like when I grew up, they talked about the 60s as being the era of the hippies. That That's not what was really interesting about the 60s. What was really interesting about the 60s was the civil rights movement. It's, that was amazing. Yeah. It was incredible what they were able to do. And yeah, I mean, maybe Johnson had some problems, but man, that guy got it passed. And uh, you, you got to give him that. You know, he's he... You know, he sounded like a cracker, but uh, he he got it done. Uh, He got it done. Yeah, yeah. He said some terrible things in public and did great things in public. That's all I'm saying. Like, he's a complicated cat, but he got it done. That's going to be our our quote for for your episode of the podcast. Crackers getting it done. Uh, all right. Well, well, thanks, guys. It was really fun. I genuinely enjoyed it. It was great. I loved Dietrich's reason for hope. Mariah, what's your reason for hope this week? Um, my reason for hope is going to sound a little strange. Um, so, <laughs> but bear with me. I'm and I'm going to go through it quickly. Um, so there's this great article in the in the New York Times this week um, about Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. Let's go back to Virginia real quick. As we all may recall, a couple of years ago, Virginia politics was in a shambles. In spite of there's there's like a lot of great work happening, but um, the leaders of the state were a hot mess. So uh, Ralph Northam had this blackface scandal Mm -hmm. where um, he's still denying it, but supposedly there were pictures of him in blackface in medical school. Although he says he did wear blackface as part of a Michael Jackson costume at at one point. But the the lesson here is you should never wear blackface. Um, (laughs) And, you know, there were calls for him to resign. And I'll be honest, I thought he should have resigned. That is an incredibly hurtful um, recent thing that that happened. And so I felt the same way. But then his lieutenant governor, who would have replaced him, also had a scandal. Um, He was accused of sexual assault. And then the the person, uh, I think it was the attorney general who would have replaced him, came out and said, well, you know, I wore blackface too. So... There would be like nobody <laughs> left at the top of the of the government in Virginia. So Northam committed to staying in. And this article gets into how he did that. He went to the black community and um, asked for forgiveness, but also asked 
um, what can I do for you? And he did it, um, you know, pretty quietly. And then he actually did a lot of the work that they asked him to take on. And as a result, um, uh, racial equity in Virginia has been like just rocketed forward. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when this stuff is discussed, it's all lip service. It's, um, you know, politicians going to black churches, having a photo op, and then going away until the next election. And that's not what happened here. And a lot of the um, older black activists and, and electeds in some of these communities took a lot of flack for standing with him, but they were able to get projects and legislation passed that they felt were really going to help their communities. And so, um, you know, this idea that 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 you can survive a scandal um, in, in is kind of foreign to all of us right now, um, but quietly doing the work that really changes things might be more important in some cases than canceling someone. Um, mm. And so that whole situation gives me reason for hope that um, there are opportunities out there and people who are willing to make some sacrifices and, and do the work to to create change. So that's great. It is hopeful and and really interesting allowing people to be imperfect in their uh, conversations about race uh, and learn from that and then hopefully help improve the situation is really, really important. Because if you don't give someone a little bit of birth in their coming to an understanding about uh, the institutional racism in our country, mm -hmm. uh, then we won't be able to actually make change there. You're just going to, as you said, you know, like, push them out of out of power out of a position where they can make change. Yeah, and maybe we as a as a party might start looking at, you know, ways to hold people accountable and also allow them to do good work as well as as part of that accountability. Tell me about your reason for hope. <laughs> uh, my reason for hope is that the Keystone XL pipeline is officially canceled. When we talk about canceling something, that project is dead. And um, this is the result of years of activism and dedication led by indigenous activists. And mm -hmm. uh, you remember all the fights and uh, standoffs with literally hoses being uh, sprayed on the protesters who were in blocking the in the cold. Yeah, mm -hmm. just like unbelievable um passion and dedication and it took a long time um but that project is over and that shows the power that organizing has um it also shows you know i mean this didn't happen overnight and and there were times when it looked really bleak and of course when trump came into office he said we're going to reactivate the the pipeline we're going to make sure that that goes through uh, and then elections have consequences and uh and biden rescinded that trump order so it takes a long time, this work. It's not, change doesn't happen overnight, but thanks to these dedicated activists, again, really organized and led by indigenous people uh, whose lands were affected by this, this project is now dead. And, and that's really inspiring and hopeful to see that kind of, that kind of activism come to fruition. Love it. All right, time for our hero of the week. Yay, I got to pick this week's hero. 
Um, and I picked Darnella Frazier, who um, won an honorary Pulitzer Prize, quote, for courageously recording the murder of George Floyd, a video that spurred protests against... Sorry, I gotta it's start okay. over. It's um, okay. I have to say, it's... She was 17, I think, when she recorded this video. Um and she and her little cousin, who I think was around 11 at the time, walked to the store for snacks and saw what was happening. And she started recording it. And it hurts that children witnessed that firsthand. But if we didn't have that video, uh, the world would not have changed last year. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think that this prize is uh uh it's heartbreaking but well deserved and it did take a lot of courage for her uh to to stay there and, and do that and then also to testify at the Derek Chauvin trial earlier this year mm-hmm. um so uh the committee awarded her this this prize for the video that spurred protests against police brutality around the world highlighting the crucial role of citizens in journalists' quests for truth and justice. So thank you, Darnell. Beautiful. Brave young woman. And uh, she is our hero of the week. All right. <laughs> Switching gears now. Uh, it's been, this has been a jam-packed episode so far. We haven't even gotten to our interview with Delegate guy yet uh which is really really substantive informative and and inspiring and i know everyone wants to get involved in virginia um Mm -hmm. but let's get to this week's to-do list we always have our marching orders and something that we got to do um and we have something for everyone to sign up for the resistance to persistence call That's right. This Thursday, June 24th, from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, join Swing Left for the first look at our national strategy in the post-Trump era. I know a lot of people have been asking about what are our targets going to be? What's our strategy moving forward? We're going to look ahead at our target races for 2021 and 2022. And Most importantly, what I'm the most excited about is how we build a long-term sustained 10-year plan to defeat the GOP and protect democracy. Exactly what Dietrich was talking about. Um, We'll be unveiling some exciting changes to our political targeting strategy uh, and how volunteers and donors can get involved to maximize their impact. That's what we always want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'll there'll be uh, a special guest joining us. I'm not going to say who it is. Oh, but a special guest. Too. Any hints or? I don't know, so I can't give Does any it hints. Rhyme with Joe Schmiden, maybe. No, <laughs> it could be. I I literally don't know. <laughs> I don't know who the special guest is, so I can't give any hints. But um, sign up. We'll have a link on Swing Left dot org slash podcast on our podcast page or you can just go straight to swingleft.org um that's be even easier like don't (laughs) circumvent the podcast page go straight to swingleft.org and sign up for our resistance to persistence call can't wait 
And to get inspired, we have a great conversation that you had with uh, Delegate Nancy Guy. Nancy Guy serves Virginia's 83rd district in the House of Delegates. She beat out a Republican incumbent for the seat in 2019 by just 41 votes. She's a former Virginia Beach school board member, retired lawyer, small business owner, and education consultant. She grew up in Virginia Beach, where she now lives. Delegate Guy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure to be here. You grew up in the community that you now serve. Um, what inspired you into action? Two things. One, I realized that no matter how good you are at advocacy, if you don't have the right people in the chairs punching the right green button and the right red button, then mm. nothing really changes. And uh, Donald Trump, 2016. And so in 2016, one of the things I became involved in after in the wake of that fiasco, although I had worked on campaigns for that, I became really involved with the Democratic Party here in Virginia Beach, and I organized the 83rd House District. And, you know, when you live somewhere for 40 years, you know a lot of people. And, you know, I got a really good, robust volunteer organization. And we were the curling edge, I think, of the blue wave coming back after 2016 here in Virginia. You know, um, yeah. Ralph Northam, who ran for governor, who is our governor, is a good friend. He's from Virginia Beach. He used to live four doors down from us. Oh. His wife, Pam, and I were on the PTA board together before any of us ran for anything. And we were joking one day that I ran for school board in 96, so I was kind of the first politician on the block. And so we got it organized and got Ralph and the rest of the ticket elected in 2017. And we picked up you know, 15 seats in the General Assembly, almost getting the majority then. Right. And then uh, just as a reminder for everyone during that 2017 election, you would have had the House of Delegates were it not for a basically a coin flip, pulling a name out of a hat <laughs> out of a bowl, a very historic bowl. My, my colleague mm. Shelley Simons was defeated because she she actually tied David Yancey and they drew a name literally out of a bowl and she lost. And she came back in 2019 when I was running and won. Yeah. And so she's in my class, and it's a privilege to be her colleague. Um, in 2018, we flipped three congressional seats here in Virginia out of 11. So we went from having a 7-4 Republican delegation to having a 7-4 Democratic delegation, which was you know, a big, big switch. And uh, we flipped the second district, which is Virginia Beach, is included in the second district to Elaine mm -hmm. Luria. And then... Um, and then in 19, you know, as the head of the 83rd, I started looking for a candidate and every conversation would end with, it's really not a good time for me, Nancy, but you should do it. <laughs> so I was go. like, there was no one else. So, I, you know, I knew I had this, the ability because I have a very diverse background with, I've worked in law and healthcare and education, which are three very diverse areas. And I knew I had the skill set. Um, I don't know that I knew entirely what I was getting myself into. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you uh, you had run for a school board a couple of times, so you had that experience. Right. But um, going against a, a incumbent Republican for the House of Delegates was a daunting task to take on for uh, for a candidate. What what surprised you? What was something that you didn't expect about that run? Well, let me say something about my opponent in 2019. You know, the Stollies are a powerhouse in Virginia pol Republican politics. You know, his 
older brother had been a senator from Virginia Beach um, and is now the sheriff. His younger brother is the Commonwealth attorney, which is also an elected position. His other older brother is the commissioner of accounts, which is an appointed position, appointed mm. by his brother, Ken Stolle. His sister, Shabon Donovan. I see a pattern there emerging. <laughs> is, is, is a senator from, from uh, Henrico County. Um, and so, you know, the whole family is, is, is in, in Republican politics and they're a force to be reckoned with. And I, I, I had a colleague say to me, um, I, well, I guess I can quote him, Don Scott, my colleague Don Scott, who is also my seatmate when he first met me at an event in 2019, said that if you beat a Stolly in Stollyville, you'll be a legend. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he still calls me the legend. Um, so I, I knew, you know, it was a daunting task. But that said, I had known all the Stollies. We went to high school together. I don't know that I'm as daunted by them as some people are. Um, and Chris is not a bad guy. He's not Donald Trump, but he votes wrong. He just votes wrong. And because people were so intimidated by them, nobody'd run. And I just felt like the citizens of the 83rd deserved a choice. They, they deserved to know, you know, if, if they wanted somebody who had an A plus from NRA, then vote for him. If they wanted somebody that's going to have an F, vote for me. If they wanted somebody who was an OBGYN who supported you know, mandatory ultrasounds for people getting abortions, vote for him. If you voted, if you believed a woman should be able to make her own decisions about reproductive health, then vote for me. You know, if you believe climate change is real and we should do something about it, vote for me. If you believe that, you know, it's not, then vote for him. <laughs> there were just, there were a lot of, of issue differences that made it very distinct. Now, as to what yeah. surprised me the most, uh, two things. One, the ungodly amounts of money that got spent in our race in 2019. Mm. I mean, the, the the Republicans literally threw the kitchen sink at me. Um, and we, we, in the end, ended up having to keep pace and were able to. Um, and then the second thing, I think, was how he went negative on me in July, I think, maybe August. And I wasn't the incumbent. You know, and I'd been out of office 15 years on the school board, and he started running negative ads about votes I had taken on the school board. And I I remember thinking that was bizarre, because if you're a tenure incumbent, it seems to me you should have a positive record that you want to run on that would talk about all you had done for your community, and you wouldn't start out by attacking your relatively inexperienced uh, adversary right out of the box, but that's what he did. And mm. and some of the things he said were very manipulated to the point of not being true. Sure. And and I think that kind of shocked me. I, I was resolute that I was going to to run a positive race and talk about what I said before. You know, you have a choice. These are the issues where we differ wildly and you should support me if you believe that these are the right things to do. And uh and of course, I went after him on his voting record because it was terrible on issues that I happened to care about. But but I never went after him and I never misrepresented anything he had done. So it was yeah. kind of a bizarre thing. And and I, I think that level of distortion and untruth, even in today's political climate, really shocked me, especially coming from somebody that I graduated from high school with and I who I know knew better, you know? Well, I, yeah, I'm... I'm sure it shocks none of our listeners that Republicans would distort voting records and create ads that are negative and full of falsehoods. But that is when uh, when it comes on this level in your community and someone that you knew that that's got to that's got to hit extra hard. Um, 
you do have now, a- after a few years in the House of Delegates, um, a voting record that you can run on for this next election. And since the Democrats won the trifecta in Virginia, um, you've been able to pass a lot of really great legislation and make some meaningful changes for the Commonwealth. What are some of the highlights? It has been a real privilege to be part of what I think is transformative change in Virginia uh, over the last two years. And there are so many highlights, it's almost impossible to, to <laughs> ratchet through them. But but I'll give you a few. One of the issues that was enormously important to me was environmental protection. Virginia Beach is the second most imperiled region in the country from sea level rise behind New Orleans. It, it's a big issue to me. It's a big issue to my community. And I believe climate change is real and that we have an obligation to the, the generations that come behind us to do everything we can to address an issue that's been neglected for decades. Um, so we passed the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which committed Virginia to zero carbon energy production by 2050, 50% by 2030, with, with the closing of all coal and natural gas plants and a 100% conversion over to renewable energy. So that was huge. We joined the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, uh, which is a cap and trade program with the 12 state star Northeast. That was big. And this past year, we passed the Virginia Clean Cars Act, which was also huge. Um, and I also serve on the courts committee. Criminal justice reform was a huge undertaking this year. You know, we have a real problem in America that really transcends race. It transcends socioeconomic level. It transcends party identification. We have the highest per capita incarceration rate in the world by a pretty wide measure. We are 4.4% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated. So one in four people who live behind bars live in the land of the free. And Mm. that should be an appalling statistic to everybody. And we have done a great deal to make the the judicial system fairer in Virginia this year, including a complete overhaul of the probation system. We have 6,000 people serving in in our prisons because of of technical violations of probation. Um, We're going to be doing something about that. we legalized marijuana. That, of course, made a lot of headlines. We became the first state in the South to overturn the death penalty, which I think was probably the proudest single vote that I cast. And because I serve on courts and the criminal law subcommittee, and I had both bills, I voted for it six different times. So I'm proud of that. (laughs) Um, We did a great great deal for voting rights. You know, we went from being one of the most restrictive to being one of the most expansive in terms of having no excuse early voting, eliminating picture IDs, allowing same-day registrations, um, having voter boxes. Of course, during the pandemic, that all turned out to be very important, and it's something we're going to continue fighting to do, and it's certainly become a huge issue on the national stage right now. Of course. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, you've been spending all this time doing all these really important things for people uh, and not spending all of your time suppressing people's votes, which uh, sets you apart from a lot of uh, legislatures that we see in the news right now. That's right. Well, I absolutely believe that more more people that vote, the stronger your democracy is. Um, I fought really hard for public education. We were able to give our teachers a 5% pay raise. We were able to increase the number of guidance counselors um, in schools, which I think is going to be really important coming out of the pandemic with some of the things we need. We made historic investments in, in uh, early childhood education, which is a, a, a big focus of my friend Pam Northam, the first lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and my fights for those uh, led to my being named Virginia Education Association um, Legislator of the Year this year, which is very rare for a freshman and is probably the accolade I am proudest of. 
so that was that we made big strides in that area on uh, equality. Um, we, we became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Of course, it's still in the courts as to whether or not that will have the impact of putting it in the federal, but we've done our job now. Um, we also passed the Virginia Values Act. Um, I actually was the patron of the bill that repealed our prohibition against uh, uh, same-sex marriages or civil unions, which you know was, was uh, declared un unconstitutional in the Oberfeld decision, but, you know, given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, you can't take it for granted. So I right. thought it was best that we get that off of the Get book. that off the books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, Amazing. so much that we've done. Oh, and then gun safety, which was a big focus of my campaign because we had the mass shooting down here in Virginia beach in May of my election year in 2019. Um, we went from having an F on Gifford's, you know, Gabby Gifford's evaluation to having a B plus. I'm really proud of that. You know, we instituted universal background checks and uh, a red flag law, uh, one handgun and bunt purchase limit, which was really important because mm. Virginia had become the terminus of something called the iron pipeline, which was our, our gun laws were so loose that a lot of people would come down and buy guns en masse in Virginia and then transport them up I-95, which was the iron pipeline into the Northeast. And the Attorney General's office in New York had actually done a study and discovered that one in four crimes where they knew what was done, one in four solved crimes in New York was committed with a gun bought in Virginia. So wow. I'm really glad that we uh, we're doing something to cut that off. Not, not that we've cut it off, but they at least now have to go further south. Yeah, that's sure. just in incredible to hear what having the trifecta, all of the great policies that you were able to uh, pass in just two years uh, makes it really exciting and hopeful to see like what we can duplicate in other states. Um, that's right. When we organize on the ground, like like you've been organizing on the ground in Virginia. As I mentioned, you won your race in 2019 by 41 votes, <laughs> a very tight margin. It was the closest race of the election. Uh, it's going to be tight. By a wide margin. By a, yeah, by thousands of votes. Um, it's going to be a very tight one again in November, I imagine. Um, and there's going to be the same kind of uh, money spent by Republicans to try to rip apart all of the great work that you have been doing. What's at stake in this election? And what does it mean to you to have the support of volunteers uh, from your own community and from outside and groups like Swing Left? Well, I don't want to sound too hyperbolic, but, uh, you know, our democracy is at stake right now. Um, we have really seen with the polarization and the the behavior of the Republican Party across the United States in basically quenching democracy and, and being able to maintain power uh, just for the sake of power. I, I mean, I honestly sometimes don't know even what these people believe in anymore, except for no taxes. I, you know, they don't believe in public education. They don't believe in public safety. Apparently, they'd say they did. But then by the same token, you know, they don't really want to fund anything and they won't even investigate, you know, a mob that attacked the Capitol Police on January 6th. So, yeah. uh, you know, we really are, Virginia was, I think, a model for what can happen when you really energize your electorate. We, we didn't have some huge influx of people move into Virginia in 2017 who hadn't <laughs> been here all along. 
But what we did have was a lot of people who got off their couch and started doing. And I have to admit, I'm one of those people. Um, and this is what's possible. If we do not maintain the majority in the Virginia House of Delegates, I will tell you that the Republicans will undo all our good work in a single session. They will repeal all these amazing bills. I mean, we're seeing what they're doing in other states. So right. I, I, that's what's at stake. Um, what does it mean to me? It means everything to me. Um, in this dark time in our country, I have truly been inspired how people from across our nation realize that we're all in this together and that a rising tide raises all ships and that what happens, like I said, in Virginia, we what we've done has direct impact on our, our neighbors in New York. Mm -hmm. When we joined the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, it created emission savings for the whole mid-Atlantic and northeastern corridor. Um, so, you know, none of us are an island except Hawaii, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but we really, uh, what we do matters to each other. And I've really been inspired by the extent to which people understand that. Uh, of course I did too. I gave lots of money to John Ossoff and John Warnock and right. Raphael Warnock and Georgia. Sure. Um, I want to tell a story. When Barack Obama won in 2008, the Republicans went into study about how they could turn this thing around. And if you've ever read a book by Jane Mayer called Dark Money, she mm. really talks about this. And the head of the, the Republican National Committee at the time was a man named Ed Gillespie. And Ed sure. Gillespie ran for governor against Ralph Northam in mm -hmm. 2017. And he came up with an idea called Red Map. And the idea of Red Map was that the Republicans were going to take all this money and this support that they had been spreading out, and they were going to put it all into state legislatures because state legislatures control how the lines are drawn. And if they controlled the maps in 2010, then they would be able to grab control of Congress and have their way. And it played out exactly as they planned. Well, Chris Stolle, who I ran against in 2019, was the poster child for Red Map. All right. In spite of his family connection, he had not run for public office before. When he ran in 2009, the, the RSLC, the Republican State Legislative Committee, gave him an unprecedented $350,000, the most money ever wow. given to a single candidate in a state legislative race. And of course, he crushed the Democratic incumbent. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and then in 2010, they promptly redrew this district to protect him. And, you know, he had no opponent. They're moving forward. So that is their playbook. They, they are interested in retaining power. They are not interested in democracy as in its yeah. idealistic form. So that's what's at stake. And we just have to realize that in the end, there are, I believe, more Americans who believe, as I do, as you do, as your listeners do, we just have to stay engaged because our enemy is not just the Republican Party. It's apathy. Mm, yeah, that's that's a great quote. And you'll forgive me if I tell you that I'm excited that you won by 41 votes. Um, I know that you would like a, a much wider margin and uh, we're going to help you get there in your next election. But uh, races like yours really reinforce uh, the power of volunteers to make an impact. And now 
leading into this new election, hopefully we'll be able to knock on doors again and uh, and have that that kind of organizing on the ground that we uh, that you right. and we did together so well in 2019. So and look at uh, Shelly. You, you brought up Shelly Simons, the lady whose name came out of the bowl. Right. And, and you know, <laughs> her name came out of the bowl. And then the next year she won by eight percent. So, you yeah. know, if you stay at it and and keep pushing. So I'm hoping I won by 41 and. I'll win by 14% or something. <laughs> I'll take 4%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to help you. And um, and one final question uh, that we wrap up all of our interviews with, what gives you the most hope for our future? Um, young people. I think the single most important thing our young people can do is realize that it is in their power to affect the outcomes of these races. And, uh, in so many ways, our generation has failed them. Hmm. And, and I, part of what get, keeps me going, I guess, is, is feeling guilty about that, especially on the issues of climate change. Hmm. Um, but also gun safety and education and equality. There are a lot of ways where we just are not living up to who America should be. But I am hopeful as I look at, at these young people who have so much enthusiasm and idealism and energy uh, that they do get it and that they're going to move it forward. Wonderful. Me too. They inspire me every day as well. And um, you inspire me. Thank you so much for stepping up in your own community and being such a great example. We look forward to working on your campaign in the months to come. And thanks again for taking time to talk to us on, on how we win. Oh, it's absolutely, again, my privilege. And I look forward to seeing you all boots on the ground or faces on the screen whenever I can. <laughs> and if you're looking for ways to get directly involved, um, go to guyfordelegate.com and read more about us. And we'll have a link to your uh, your page on our, on our page as well, our podcast page, swingleft.org slash podcast. Thank you, Delegate Guy. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and stay engaged. How are you staying engaged this year? We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and let everyone know you're listening. Share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, you can sign up to volunteer while you're there. That's right. We really appreciate you being with us. We're actually going to push next week's podcast till Friday so we can have uh, Ethan and Tori from Swing Left on to talk about our national strategy. Uh, that's going to be a really great one. So don't miss it. See you then. MSW.